song voices. We don't need to sugarcoat things, let's put it that way. We need to be real, we need to be honest. We're in trouble and the only way that we're going to get through this is by working together. We have to get serious about closing the gap and I don't think governments have been serious. We need the scientists to help us to reduce the emissions and we need to get communities and people out on country and learning about the environment and reconnecting with landscapes again, just the way Aboriginal people have done for thousands of years. Communities have had the solutions to end this injustice for 30 years. The governments have chosen to not prioritise saving black lives. Enough is enough. Strong voices on Karma Radio. Hello, good afternoon and welcome to another Strong Voices program here on Calm Radio. My name's Carl Dowling and we're coming to you from the Red Centre here in Alice Springs and Bantua. Great to be back with you for another show. Coming up on the program today, uh, the COVID vaccine rollout in some remote communities across the Northern Territory uh, has continued at a slow rate. And today we're going to hear from the Federal Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Ken White, who's going to be talking about an update to the COVID vaccine rollout program. Also, this past weekend, uh, members of the Indigenous Marathon Project uh, came to Alice Springs to undertake a challenge that they have never faced, running a full marathon uh, here in Alice Springs. And we'll be having a chat to a couple of the members of the team here on Karma. But first, uh, I Unheard, a new six-episode documentary series explores instances of discrimination in the prison system over the years, including those of First Nations peoples. The documentary series, which is being released online, speaks to people who have faced injustice firsthand, as well as their families, including relatives of Dungadi man David Dungai Jr., who died in custody in 2015. Series creator Shannon Devendran is talking here with Karma's Paul Wiles. Took to the streets to demand better coverage of issues of racial injustice here in Oz. And I think it raised a very good question. Is it why does most of Australia know the name George Floyd, but not many know the names David Dungay Jr. and TJ Hickey? Um, and so, you know, what we set out to do at Lab Bible Australia, you know, reaching half a billion people worldwide, or over half a billion, is is look at ways to use our audience to kind of support support what Australians are after in, in terms of better coverage here. And so you know, the first step there was reaching out to the National Justice Project and National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Services, um, the Asian Australian Alliance, Islamophobia Register, Deadly Connections, Refugee Council of Australia, All Together Now, Human Rights Commission, among many other partners, and really ask them how we can lend our audience to support the great work that they do. Mm. And so uh, what we did was launch the Unheard campaign in February of 2021 this year. And um, you know, what we aimed to do was uh, not only set an example across the Australian media landscape in terms of consistently covering these issues here in Oz and making sure that Australians were aware of what's happening on their own doorstep, uh, but also making sure that the information that was getting out there was, was coming from the voices of, of those who have impacted have been directly impacted and making sure that those facts were there on both sides. Um, and so through that campaign and through telling those truths, we, we've so far been able to reach over 100 million people worldwide um, and we've helped generate over 250,000 signatures for our, our partners' petitions. 
uh, and we continue to funnel our audience into supporting petitions and donation programs and volunteer programs. Um, but as we began to develop relationships with our partners and understand uh, the people and the communities they represent, you know, we, we started to identify these uh, particular cases that were emblematic of certain issues. And, and you know, as you kind of listed earlier, the, the issues that we address in each of the episodes, Indigenous deaths in custody, treatment of asylum seekers and refugees, targeting of Indigenous youth, attacks towards Asians during COVID, attacks towards the Muslim community and the vilification of the African community. We, we began to build these relationships with people directly impacted. And so... You know, one of the, the first families uh, that we, we got in contact with was uh, the Dungay family through National Justice Project. And, and hearing their story, we began to see an opportunity here to kind of really share their stories with the world. And rather than just speaking to Australians, and I think that's an important part to make sure all Australians are aware of what's happening in our country, um, but also to tell the world, because I think, you know, historically putting a global focus on these issues really puts the pressure on, on the decision makers to start making positive change and hopefully we can do that with the release of this docker. Australia has for decades um, gone under the radar globally with its treatment of First Nations peoples and people of other ethnicities. Uh, it's tragic in a sense that George Floyd triggered many Australians into action, but it's also been a very sad case within Australia of out of sight, out of mind, because for many years, mainstream media did not give the type of coverage that was necessary. Many Australians would continue to say, we're not a racist country. They were, in a sense, blind to what was happening in their own country. Many of the incidents involving Aboriginal people happen remotely. Why do you think Australians turned a blind eye for so long? Was it government's fault? I think it's a hard truth to come to terms with. You know, I think Australians, we generally view ourselves as very laid back and welcoming and, you know, we, we hold a lot of uh, pride in, in our mateship. Um, and so, you know, something as ugly as racism is something that's difficult to, to admit. And like you said, it, it's often a case of out of sight, out of mind. If people aren't seeing this in their daily lives, they feel like, oh, that's not an issue. And that, that makes sense to even in cases where people may live inland and never go to the beach and say, oh, I never see anyone drowning. But if you live by the beach, you know, you, you'll see people drowning all the time. And I think this is very much the case is that a lot of Indigenous communities are experiencing racism every day. And, you know, some communities may not see this, but it, but it is an issue. And, and you know, to, to give you an example, uh, during the production of the episode on Indigenous deaths in custody, during that time, we had to change our statistics several times because of the amount of Indigenous people who were dying in in custody, you know, during that, in that period. I think it was over over five Indigenous peoples uh, and had died in custody while we were making this episode. And so it's a very real and live issue um, and something that we absolutely need to address. And Danny Leong, who's, who's an MP, uh, appears in one of the episodes on attacks towards Asians uh, during, during COVID. And she put it really well saying that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but she essentially said it, it's reached a point where we just need to tell the stories and make people sit with them uncomfortably for a while. And I think, you know, how we've managed to, to go so long without addressing these issues is very much, like you said, out of sight, out of mind. 
but if we can reach people and a large amount of people to let them know these things are happening, uh, as George Newhouse said, the Director of National Justice Project, these things are happening every day of every week of every year. It's just that we don't see it. And so if we can make sure those stories are getting out there and reaching as many people as possible, we can build awareness and, and out of that start to promote action towards you know, positive results. Addressing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration rates within this country is, again, a, a long-standing issue and one that the wider public don't seem to want to be a part of any process. But what we do see is bigger jails being built, more police and more arrests. Now... Obviously, as a nation, we're not going in the right direction until we start to get some very basic issues resolved. Exactly right. You know, the Royal Commission in 1991, um, you know, showed that our prison population was uh, around about 14 percent Indigenous, and 30 years there was a number of recommendations that were made to start to rectify that and deter. Um, Indigenous people away from incarceration. But instead, in in the last 30 years, that number has doubled. So in many ways, the the situation is getting worse. And I think what we really need to do is is look at the, I guess, intergenerational trauma that has gone in um, and you know these communities have been impacted by it. And then how do we how do we rectify that? How do we start to to I guess adjust systemic racism that racism that has been built into the system. How can we adjust that to start to see more positive results for for communities everywhere? Mm. Shahan, um, again, looking at racism, you're focusing on a number of different groups, and I think because uh, uh, you know some people may live closely within a certain community that has a, a number of Asians or a number of Greeks or a number of Italians, they become very, very familiar with that community. But uh, and and then we hear comments, "Well, I'm not racist," but uh, at the same time, if there's trouble within another group of people people who've come to this country from overseas, people are very quick to label and start to build up barriers. And again, the media has had an enormous role in stirring people up. That is the case often. Um, And we we try to address that in the documentary series as well. You know, there are some very traumatic and serious issues uh, that we deal with in terms of deaths and assaults. Um, But we also look at the mental impacts that it has and how, even as children, uh, how the media portrays certain communities and to make children almost feel ashamed of their background uh, because of what they consume through media. And so, you know, I think I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head in how we communicate uh, describing different communities is you know, very important for our future and, and the perception of, of future Australians. It's a very broad uh, topic to cover and... Um I'd imagine that the research that's gone into it uh, has, uh, in a sense, opened up a can of worms. I mean, the producers and the people involved, I'm sure, were learning every day. But uh, as a nation, putting these issues out there and putting it in people's faces so they do have to sit uncomfortably with it, it's sad in a sense that it will take something like that before governments respond. Australia is a very, very rich nation. We have a relatively small population. Why can't we get it right in putting money into areas that would make the lives of certain ethnic groups better, but also at the same time address the historical issues of of the white Australia policy? It's interesting that you say that about having that information out there and 
and it being very confronting and then looking at the solutions behind it. What we did in, in the making of this, this series is we tried to collate all different media that has basically covered this over the years. So you're, you're talking about radio, podcasts, TV news, TV interviews, newspaper articles. Um, wherever there's been coverage on these issues, we tried to collect all of that to, to make the point that this has been covered. You know, people are talking about this already, but nobody's really doing anything about it. And if we can collect all of the different voices that are speaking on these issues, that you know, what we hope we've done as well uh, in the documentary is, is put it in um, in very simple terms to say, you know, these, these issues are out there. It is being discussed, uh, but when you're getting just drops of it here and there, and it's not, um, you know, not really effectively driving to, to the core of the issue, you know, to, to talk about um, an assault against a Muslim woman, Muslim woman, you know, people might see that as an isolated incident and say, oh, that's terrible that that happened. But when you look at the larger picture and you realize how often this is happening um, and the lack of systems in place in our, in our, um, in our government and in our uh, police systems to be able to track that and monitor that, I think that's really when you begin to see the, the broader issues behind it. You know, to, to connect with our audience, you know, we try to start each episode uh, from a human level and saying and telling a story about a mother who's lost her son or a, a daughter who tried to take her mother to the theatre and was attacked or two sisters trying to go to the shop who were threatened with a knife because of the way they looked. Uh, and I think that's something that all humans can connect with to understand that, oh, okay, if my mother was in danger or my son or my sister, you know, that's something that could happen to me. But then when we start to bring together the news around it and the statistics, you start to see much broader issues here. And I think, you know, really what we, we need, I think, um, to drive positive change and see those changes in system is is a mass awareness of what's going on, is a, a you know, a desire uh, or at least a pressure to, to to say, look, here are the issues and, and we need to address these effectively. You know, I think in the history of Australia, 21 people have been um, convicted of hate crimes despite thousands and thousands of reports each year. You know, And I think that does speak to, to perhaps a, a lapse in the effectiveness of the systems that we have in place. And so hopefully going out to a global audience with this documentary series and with the campaign, uh, we'll be able to put that focus on the decision makers in Australia and and hopefully that'll lead to some, some results. Going forward, uh, education of young people, uh, giving them the true history of this country, the non-anglicised version, versions from people who have come from overseas, their journeys. Um, why is it important that these stories be told to young people so going forward as a nation, perhaps we can change? I think they're the youth of the future and we need to absolutely make them aware of, of the world that they're growing up in. You know, we're seeing some great, great activism from uh, the youth population in Australia to drive changes in climate and I, you know, I think you know, making sure that they're aware of the world that they're growing up in um, you know, can, can make sure the world's going to be a better place. With We... You know, one of the subjects in the in documentary series uh, talks about how uh, he was you know, pushed to the brink of suicide because of how he was treated by his peers. And generally, children aren't growing up racist. You know, they they're learning this from somewhere. And so, if we can reach the youth audience and let them know about these issues, you know, I think that gives them strength in, in being able to deal 
with racism uh, in a day-to-day basis. You know, we're not going to solve racism overnight. This is going to take time. Um, so as many people as we can equip with the knowledge of, of where we are now, I think the more united we're going to be. That was the creator of the new six-part documentary series, Unheard, uh, Sahan Devendra, and they're speaking with Kama's Paul Wiles. You're tuning in to uh, Strong Voices here on Kama Radio. We'll be hearing very soon from the uh, Federal Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Ken White. We're going to head to a quick break and then we'll come back with our next story. Strong Voices. Well, the COVID vaccine rollout in remote communities uh, through the Northern Territory continues on at a slow pace, with the Barclay region seeing the lowest fully vaccinated rate in the Territory at 30%, according to federal data. But the federal government are keen to battle growing hesitancy and low take-up of the vaccine, announcing a new campaign directed at First Nations peoples earlier this week. Karma's Fully Press spoke to the Federal Minister for Indigenous Australians, Ken White, regarding the ongoing vaccination, vaccine rollout. Minister Ken Wyatt, thank you very much for talking to us here at Karma. It's good to be with you again. I haven't spoken to you for a while. I was wondering if we could start off by talking about the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. The Beagle Bay community in the Kimberley say they've had success at fully vaccinating 90% of their community against COVID-19. They say it's due to individual community engagement. And since I last spoke to you, there have been some improvements uh, across some remote communities, but there's still are rates for areas where there are high Indigenous populations still lagging behind. Um, I was wondering if we could start off about what conversations the federal government are undertaking with Aboriginal controlled health services to engage at a community level. Well, there's two levels um, that are recurring. One is where Nacho, who represents all of the Aboriginal community controlled health organisations, sits on a, a task force or an advisory body to Minister Hunt and to the Department of Health. So they strategically identify work and areas of concern and then have implemented a program of work. The other is through Pat Turner and I meeting regularly uh, and both of us are on other workforce committees that are looking at COVID-19 and how we tackle the hesitancy in our communities. Because what worries both Pat and I is the number of people who have not vaccinated at 8am today, we, we had a figure that 63% of Indigenous Australians, 16 and over, have had one dose. And about 50% have had their second dose. But I know there are a lot of communities in the top end where those figures don't match that. And the problem is, when the virus does come, they will be extremely vulnerable. And we're seeing from the deaths that have occurred, it is amongst people who are not vaccinated. It's a challenge. If I can get you... Uh, the federal government data that I looked at earlier this week uh, for particular regions showed that the Barclay region has only just over 30% of their population fully vaccinated. I was wondering to give get your thoughts on proposals from jurisdictions, including like the Gunner government here in the NT, uh, about what they've put forward as a roadmap for freer movement between states in upcoming weeks. And when we see rates like 30% fully vaxxed in the Barclay, would you say that you're concerned about the protection of remote communities once freer movement is seen among states? Look, I'm absolutely concerned because 
Once states reach 80% of their total population, and that includes non-Indigenous and Indigenous, then they will open their borders because that is the national plan that all premiers and chief ministers have agreed to. Our people won't be able to lock down their communities and keep the virus out. It worked the first time, but the Delta strain is more problematic. And we have seen in New South Wales where it broke out in Western Sydney and there were individuals who came from some of the river towns who returned back to their communities and that's how it spread. And we will have people living in Darwin that will, if COVID becomes a problem, will head back home. And by heading home, they'll think it's safe, but they might be the carrier. Uh, As I once said before, an elder talked about don't create a COVID songline to our community. And the Commonwealth won't be using the Biosecurity Act this time uh, because the majority of the state or territory's population is vaccinated. So our people have got to think about when you choose not to, then you don't give your body the warriors that kill off and stop the COVID-19 Delta virus from having an impact on your lungs, your kidneys and other parts of your body. And some people don't recover And I grew up in the bush and I know what it's like to get from a country town to a regional hospital. It's not easy. And if your breathing is not good, then that impacts on uh, the rest of your body, including your heart. I don't want to see anybody say no to the vaccine and then later on when they're infected saying, I wish I had the needle. We're good at being immunised. We lead every other Australian community behind when it comes to vaccination rates for all of our other vaccinations we've had over our childhood and adulthood. And there is a figure that we're about one and a half percentage points above Australia. So we're good at uh, making sure that we protect our bodies. But on this one, we're hesitant. It's, It's not a new medication. Companies for a long time have been working on vaccines for viruses and COVID-19 is a virus. And by having the immunisation, it means that that creates the warriors in your body to prevent the virus hurting and damaging you. Minister Wyatt, I note that there's been a major campaign launched to encourage First Nations people around the country to get vaccinated, and it features a lot of high-profile First Nations people in this country. But for the remote communities where people can possibly have low English skills, may speak it as a third, fourth or fifth language, the campaign may possibly be a little lost on them. Um, Labor Senator Malandiri McCarthy has uh, criticised the slowness of action in getting messages that is in language into communities regarding the vaccine. What efforts have there been to ensure correct information is given to those communities, particularly in language that's, I suppose, outside of campaigns that are have been launched uh, in recent days? Now, we've been getting it out in language from probably... April, May, and it was originally in about 12 languages. It's now 18 because what we heard from community leaders was tell us in language, then we understand it better. Mm. Tell us the story in language because we'll understand why it's important. And having 18 languages gives strong coverage, and that's why First Nations Radio Radio Networks is 
the way we get the message out because a lot of our people listen to our stations before they listen to the ABC, although they do listen to the ABC, and that's why these messages are important. Earlier this month, month, our Chief Minister, Michael Gunner, announced a vaccine mandate for workers in a broad range of settings. Um, he says it's necessary to protect vulnerable groups, but some also argue it could come at a cost with job losses. And your colleague in the coalition, Senator Sam McMahon, says it was an overreach. I was wondering where you stood on this measure, whether how much you think a decision like this from our Chief Minister can protect vulnerable groups. Is it an overreach? No, because what the Chief Minister is doing is on the advice of his Chief Health Officer and on the advice of his Minister for Health, he would have given it a lot of thought and knows that frontline workers if they are infected, may see a number of people during the course of the day and then pass it on. If we think about just the ordinary flu and you have a bad flu season, you see people coughing and spluttering and sort of spreading the bacteria, we end up with a whole lot of people coming down with the flu. And we see it in the workplace. So Minister Gunner would be looking at what's the best way of protecting people, and so he's made a decision that frontline workers should be vaccinated. And I know there are people who will object to that. Sometimes that's hard for us to do in terms of a mandatory approach. Then we either have to comply with it or leave that workforce and look for somewhere where you're not a frontline worker. It's, It's fundamentally, as I've seen in Western Australia, the Premier there said we have to protect our communities and people argue about their rights and some will say I have the right not to have it and others will say but I work in the same workplace as you and I have the right to be protected from the virus and I don't want you giving it to me. So there's a lot of those debates that will happen but he's making it for the greater good of everybody within that community. So and let me say that mm. we've taken a lead. Outback stores... And I was talking to Sue Gordon, who is the chair of Outback Stores, said every director of Outback Stores have had their vaccination, and it wasn't mandatory. They decided they would do it because they're interacting with our communities, and then all of the employees have had both their vaccines. And it hasn't affected them. All our stores are still open, and our people who work in there are now protected from the virus, but they're protecting in a sense, as an act of love, people in their community. And Pastor Ray Minikin has asked people to have the vaccination. He said, based on the book of Ephesians, he said there is a verse in there that talks about an act of love. And he said, my act of love is to have the vaccine so I protect my sister, my brother, my mum, my dad and my community. And so that's what we're doing when we vaccinate. We're protecting other people as well as ourselves. And it's important we think that way. That was uh, Minister for the Federal Minister for Indigenous Australians, Ken White, speaking to Karma's Philippe Perez. You can listen to a uh, longer version of that interview on our website at karma.com.au. You're tuning into Strong Voices this uh, Friday, the 29th of October. It's a bit after half past two. Uh, we'll be hearing very soon from two members of uh, this year's Indigenous Marathon Squad. We'll head to a quick break and then we'll hear from those two uh, members. G'day, folks. This is Kutcher Edwards and you're listening to our Strong Voices here on Karma Radio. 
That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. Well, uh, two team members from this year's Indigenous Marathon squad have spoken about the difficulties that many young people living in remote Aboriginal communities face on a daily basis. Sissy Johns, a Nangali Nuruwuru woman from Timber Creek in the Northern Territory, says while she's more of a team sports person, she has never, ever really been a runner, uh, she thought joining the program would allow her to use the platform to get her messages out and get her remote countrymen from the Catherine region better engaged. Derek Cusack, a Kalkadoon man from Mount Isa in Queensland, tells Karma that like many young Aboriginal men, he too had gone down the road of believing he was a warrior. Well, it's that time of year again. The uh, Indigenous Marathon Project teams in uh, Mbantua, Alice Springs, they're here to do a trial run. We have a couple of the team members joining us in the studio. It's a very warm welcome to... Sissy. And Derek. Sissy, tell us your mob, your country. My country is uh, Timber Creek, west of Catherine there, the Nungali Naliwura mob. My country is uh, Mount Isa, the Kalkaroon mob, so that's northwest Queensland. Sissy, why did you get involved in the project? The project is a bit more than just being able to complete a marathon. I've been wanting to do it for quite a few years, actually. I've been watching the journey. I saw the uh, the initial documentary, Running to America, and there's a few people from Catherine who'd done it as well. And I'd just been watching their journey, and I was always had my um, heart set on doing it, and I finally applied. Were you a runner, or is this something you've just taken on board? Nope, I've never, ever, ever been a runner, ever. I'm more of a team sports type of person, and I thought this is a great way to challenge myself, but also use the platform to get my messages out and get my remote countrymen engaged from our Catherine region. Derek, what got you involved? I had a past mate. He had done the program in 2013, and me and him were doing a bit of training one day, and he would gave me a brief talk about the program. I hadn't known anything about it, and a big message that he said was like it was a very big pivotal point in his life for positivity connecting with other indigenous people that were like-minded that wanted to do positive things throughout their community throughout Australia and he said there was a perfect platform for him to excel in especially his leadership qualities and having a voice. Sissy um, we know sadly for many young Aboriginal men women's remote communities can be a good space but for a lot of people they're struggling with identity issues. They're struggling with many things. Through my work as a health promotion officer, I like to get out there and expose our communities to different opportunities and give them exposure to different things that they're capable of, but also knowledge that they didn't know that that, that was out there. In all honesty, it's sad that we have our First Nations mob living in third world conditions in a first world country. And I think IMP is an, a fantastic um, platform to get them out of that and to get them up. Derek, as a young man growing up in Mount Isa, I'm sure you've been through different stages in your life where you wanted to be a gangster, a rapper, hood or whatever. What has put you on this process? I mean, uh, we know that for many young men, young men who want to be warriors. It's a tough world out there now. Yeah, for sure. I've learned that firsthand. I went down the track of thought I was that warrior and probably wasn't until I turned 22 that I'd really taken a good hard look at myself and especially having I have really good role models in my life. So they were a very big support to me turning my life around. And that has been one of the biggest driving forces behind me is because I've changed my life was negative for a certain part of my life because I had surrounded myself with the wrong people to then just changing my whole life around where now it's just full of positive people and I meet people within this IMP journey which is just outstanding and 
awesome role models that I will share my lifetime with. Sizzy, I think the big challenge is when it's all over, when you go back home and then you start trying to engage with youth and, and hopefully give them the strength and the encouragement to know that they can change their lives if they want to. It's not just me that's been on this journey. We've got three other um, IMP grads in the Catherine region, two of them from remote communities as well, to showcase that, you know, these mob have applied for this. They've had a look at the world. They've even managed to go overseas and run a marathon. But it's just that first step is exposure, upskilling and empowerment in the, within their own communities to show that they can move forward if they wish to do that. All you have to do is you can go online on the um, Indigenous Marathon Foundation website and apply. I think applications will be opening uh, soon in November. Um, you can apply through there. If you go onto the Indigenous Marathon Foundation Facebook page, there's a, a whole bunch of us uh, IMP recruits for this year, but also grads. Any of us, all of us would be happy to talk to you, encourage you um, to apply, even like if you get selected next year to mentor you through the journey because it's something that I want to get more of our people to get into it. And Derek, a message out there for all those young warriors who they're struggling. I mean, they might be doing drugs, they might be doing bad things, but they're good people. They just need some direction in their lives. Yes, for sure. It'll be definitely taking a look at your mates, the people that you're hanging around. They usually say, the five people that you hang around the most are a resemblance of yourself. I really think sporting is a very good escape to a positive outcome. So if you want to really change your life, I would recommend signing up to a footy team, signing up and then getting getting engaged within role models within your community. Because no matter where you live in the world, there's always role models around you, big or small, as long as they're doing positive things. And if you can see that they're doing positive things, there's no need to talk bad about them, shame them out, you know, like be, be the bigger person to stand up out of the crowd and say like, all right, I'm going to change and I'm going to be the role model. And then next thing you know, you're going to make that ripple effect and you're going to, it takes one person to stand up and change their life. And then you're just going to make everyone around look at you and then they're going to see the happiness within you. And then that's going to give a driving force behind them. And then before you know it, you're going to be making that ripple effect. For me, like, if you can change one person's life, that's enough. You just got to start one person at a time. You can't change a community by yourself, but you can change one person and that person can change another person. And the next thing you know, it's that domino effect is where you're knocking them all down and you just everyone's becoming positive and positivity is empowerment and empowerment is where your voice is heard. You just got to make that positive change, you know, like hanging around them positive people and just saying positive things, visualising positive outcomes. It's easy to get caught up in negative ways, but it is also easy to change them ways. It's just how through dedication and believing in yourself that you can be a better person because I believe everyone is a good person and they just need that time to reflect on themselves and make the change within themselves. Sissy, for young women out in community who might not be interested in sport, we know in communities not everyone is a sports person. What opportunities can they take on board? Um, pretty much with also what Derek said is just finding those positive people. And I know it's hard to get out of a rut when you're when you've been when you've grown up in it when you've you're engulfed in it every day all day of your life it's probably the hardest thing to do in your life but to just find one positive thing that you love doing cherish that go for it pursue it if you need to you may need to move away from country for a bit to learn new skills to see other things to be exposed to different opportunities and then bring it back to your community if you want to come back home 
but just make sure that you open your eyes up and open your mind up as well. On that note, uh, Sissy and Derek, uh, many thanks for joining us and uh, congratulations on being a part of this year's squad. Thank you so much for having us. And thank you for tuning in today. If you did miss any of the stories on the Strong Voices program today, you can head to the website. They'll be posted up there at karma.com.au. You can also listen uh, back to a podcast of the show later this afternoon as well. That'll be up there. Thanks once again for tuning in. Make sure you have a safe uh, weekend and we'll catch you once again next week on Strong Voices at the same time at uh, 2 p.m.